How are you guys doing this morning? Yeah. Did you know that it's All Saints Sunday? All Saints Sunday. You know what All Saints Sunday is? It's it's the Sunday where we celebrate all the saints, and that's not just the, like the famous ones like uh, Saint Francis uh, or or uh, you know uh, Mother Teresa who was recently sainted or, or whatever. It's not just that time. It's where we honor all the saints, all the saints, living and dead. All those who have gone before us, all those who have named the name of Jesus and followed him faithfully. And uh, one of my favorite images in the Bible, and if you ever read the book of Revelation, there's just a few times where they just sort of peel back the veil to heaven. And you just kind of get this image of um, these departed saints and the angels and archangels and the living creatures and all of heaven just worshiping the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. It's a beautiful image. And if you ever, if you're, if you're a songwriter, if you're a worship songwriter, and you ever want to just kind of type in the cheat code, just put in stuff from the book of Revelation. It's automatically going to be a good worship song, I'm telling you. So, um, well, um, so first sermon in the new building. Um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be more brief than usual because we have six baptisms today. And isn't that awesome? And before we dive in today, I want to give you a little quiz, all right? Um, no one needs to raise their hands or anything. This is only, like, for the sake of self-knowledge, all right? So I'm going to read two words um, that relate to the mission of the church, and you have to decide what word you gravitate toward, all right? So, so here goes. Word or widows? All right, so gospel word. Or work among the poor? Which one do you gravitate toward? Which do you ascribe a greater value to? All right, next one. Children or conversions? Children or conversions? So just kind of vote in your own heart, okay? You know? Don't feel bad, you know, if, if you're voting against children, you know? So, Jesus sees you. <laughs> Don't feel bad if you're voting against conversions. I mean, these are the sons and daughters of God. I mean, Jesus sees you, all right? Okay, last, one more. All right. Work or worship? Work or worship? We've been going through the book of Acts, um, through this series on the book of Acts, and we come today to this really interesting passage here in Acts 6. Would you please turn there with me uh, if you have a Bible around you? Uh, in the Pew Bibles, it's page 914, I believe. And many scholars believe that this interesting little story explains the origin for the office of deacon. So it's, a, it's an origin story, you might say. Um, now, the story never actually uses the title deacon. It never actually uses that literally. Um, but it does use the Greek verb diakoneo. And so that verb appears, it actually appears twice. And also, for the first few hundred years of church history, it was common for the churches in major cities like Rome or in Asia Minor to have exactly seven deacons. So we know that the early church for the first few hundred years sort of read this passage as something that they should emulate. All right? We all need to have people who are serving the widows. We all need, need to have people who are doing this. And so they, they tried to emulate that. But before we get into the details, I just got to say, I always find it impressive that the biblical authors don't just tell us the good testimonies. You know what I'm saying? Um, when you're at like a, you know, a camp or a retreat, and it's like, all right, I want to hear your testimony. And it's like, 
there's just this like sort of implicit understanding that you only share the good testimonies, right? We don't want to hear the testimonies about how hard you're struggling, right? We don't want to hear the testimonies about the time when you really blew it um, and God was still there. So um, it doesn't just tell us the good testimonies about peace and love and miracles and conversions. They don't just tell us about the victorious stuff and leave out the ugly stuff. Luke always gives us the real deal. So we saw in Acts 4, right, that the apostles were uh, imprisoned and beaten. That doesn't sound like, like a victorious thing, like, woohoo, imprisoned and beaten. Um, Acts 5, Luke tells us about this married couple that was being dishonest with money in the church. That's not the kind of thing that you want to put in the Bible. That's going to make people nervous. And then here in Acts 6, we learn about an injustice that arose in the church among some of the church's most vulnerable members. Verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so it was a time of growth and vibrancy for the church, but it says a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, rose up against the Hebrews who spoke Aramaic. And it says because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the church was collecting Money, they were collecting resources, and they were distributing to those who had need. You guys get the picture that's going on here? There's this internal issue, an injustice, that has arisen in the daily distribution of the food among widows. And it's a threat to the spreading of the word. It's a threat to this vibrant mission that's going on in the church. And the problem has additional complexity, um, because although both of the groups of widows were Jewish... Um, there, was a, there was a big cultural difference between Hellenistic widows and Hebraic widows. You guys know when you kind of inject cultural difference in there, it makes it all the more complicated, doesn't it? So the church has to decide what they're going to do. And on the one hand, they could continue to focus on the word of God to the neglect of this social issue. Right? And on the other hand, they could shift their focus away from preaching the word and towards social concerns. And you've probably seen churches that do one or, or the other of these things, right? Um, you probably have been to churches that exclusively focus on evangelism to the neglect of, of any social concerns, right? They might even be afraid to comment on political injustices or, or things like this to speak out, to let the, the word of God, to let the truth of the word of God cut like, like it did for the prophets in the Old Testament. They might be afraid to say these things because they're like, that might turn people off, that might slow down the process of evangelization that's going on in here. We don't do that, we just preach the gospel. We just talk about the forgiveness of sins, right? On the other hand, um, there have been many church movements down through history that began with a focus on both the word and the poor, and then sort of later on decided to just sort of drop the emphasis on the word and focus exclusively on ministry to the poor. And what remains often after the shift, whether it's like an addiction recovery center or a thrift store or a soup kitchen, it may be a good and godly thing in its own right. It may be worth pursuing. Um, but if they're no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's no longer a church. Now, I think the inspiring thing about this church in Acts is that they didn't really fall into either of these traps. They found a way to engage with the needs of the widow without neglecting the ministry of the word. That's what this story is about. It's about this, this story is not an either or, it's a both. 
And, um, you know, the church doesn't have to choose between word and widows. Now, there are some who dispute this point. You know, some see in this passage essentially a green, a green light for the church to neglect the poor for the sake of the word. And they root this view in what the apostles say in verse 2, where they say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, some say, hey, there it is. This proves we're called to focus on the word rather than on people's physical needs. And others take the opposite view. Others say, man, the apostles have actually gotten way off track here. They shouldn't have said that. They're getting further and further away from the Lord Jesus who came to wash the feet of the saints, right? He was a servant, and they're no longer being servants. But I don't think either of these views actually takes the whole passage into account. Uh, If we read closely, we see that this is a story about the apostles in the church getting it right. Right? This isn't a church, this isn't this isn't a story about the apostles messing it up. Right? This is a story about them getting it right because, spoiler alert, the passage concludes in verse 7 by saying, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, that is the Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. Now that sounds like a pretty encouraging little epilogue, doesn't it? And then it goes on to tell us that um, some of those who were appointed, some among the seven, just kind of went on and were operating with this grace and power and great wonders began to be done by the first deacons. I think all that is meant to lead us, the readers, to the obvious conclusion that the church and the apostles got it right here. They got it right. So somewhere between the introduction of this tricky problem with the widows And the conclusion, they got it right. And and I want to point to three reasons why this morning. First, they took the injustice seriously. Second, they came up with a creative solution. And third, they understood that we're all called, but we don't all have the same calling. So first, the early church got it right because they took the injustice seriously. It says in verse 2, if you look there with me, that in order to deal with the problem uh, among the widows, the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the full number of disciples. Mm. I mean, the full number of disciples. This was a big meeting, all right? We've already learned that there's thousands of people in the church at this time. So in order for them to to take the trouble to to summon the full number of disciples, even people of different cultures, um, this meant that they were taking the problem very seriously. And verse 5 even adds that their plan pleased the whole gathering. There weren't people that went away being like, they didn't really listen to me, you know? It pleased the whole gathering. In fact, if you read carefully, you'll notice in verse 5 that all of the leaders who were chosen to deal with the problem had Greek names. In other words, because the problem arose among the Hellenistic Jews, the church said, we should probably have some Hellenistic leaders. Right? It was important because they needed leaders that understood that context, that culture, who could contextualize to the issues that they were dealing with. I mean, I see the church here exercising a level of wisdom I wish we had nowadays. I mean, I wonder in our criminal justice system how it would affect the fate of people of color if there were more lawyers and judges and parole officers of color. I wonder how that would affect things. If there were more leaders in power who understood their culture and situation as an insider, not to like, you know, uh, commend injustice, but to understand what's going on there. 
The church got this situation right because they took the injustice seriously. That much is clear. Second, the church got it right because they came up with a creative solution. So after summoning the entire church, the apostles tell them the plan. They're like, all right, we're going to create this new leadership position. It sounds funny to us now because deacons are as old as the church, but you know, this was, this was a new thing, right? This was a new wineskin for them. All right, we're going to create this new leadership position in the church to care for the widows. And you, the people, you're responsible for choosing these leaders. Verse 3 says, pick out for yourselves seven men. Right? But on the other hand, the apostles are responsible for setting the criteria. They must be men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint, it says. So that's the picture. The people choose them, the apostles appoint them. You guys know there's no self-appointed leaders in the church. There's no one who's appointed apart from the discernment of the community of God. Verse 6 says, So they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. In other words, the apostles ordained them. Now this is uh, much the same way that it works in the Anglican church today, actually. Um, if somebody wants to be a deacon or a priest, a presbyter in the body of Christ... Um, they come, they first have to go through a discernment process where people from their local church interview them and discern, is this person called to this? And they ask them good questions and they pray about it. And so the people make a recommendation. The bishop sets the criteria based on passages like this in 1 Timothy 3. And if they meet the criteria, he will appoint them to that office of leadership through the laying on of hands. It's as old as Acts chapter 6, guys. We recently had someone go through the uh, discernment process in Incarnation, and they got approved, and now they're on to their next step. And maybe God is calling some of you to be deacons. Maybe God is calling some of you to be pastors. You know, we could, we could actually we could use some deacons around here, so, so pray about that. Amen. If you think you might have that calling, let's have a cup of coffee together and talk about it. Then again, that might not be your calling. All Christians are called into ministry, but not all Christians are called into pastoral ministry. That was the point of the reformers. You know, we just, there's, there's almost too much going on right now to mention everything, but, you know, last week was the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And one of the things that the reformers said is that all work can be holy work if it's done unto the Lord. Let's do away with this system where it's like some people do holy things and some people just do carnal things. Right? Martin Luther was like, no, we're part of the priesthood of all believers. We see that in Exodus. We see that in 1 Peter. All people who are baptized and are filled with the Holy Spirit are a part of the royal priesthood of God. All of us have gifts for ministry. All of us can do ministry. And we're called to step out. But not all of us are called necessarily into pastoral ministry. And that's okay. That brings us to our last point. Number three, the church in Acts understood that we don't all have the same calling. We don't all have the same calling. We're all called, but we don't all have the same calling. The apostles appointed deacons to care for the poor and the widows, but, they say in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Listen, brothers and sisters, it's not that the apostles didn't care about widows. Anybody in this believing, early Christian Jewish community who would have read the Old Testament knew, would know that's a no-no. 
You have to care for the widow. You have to care for the foreigner. You have to care, care for the vulnerable. It's not that the apostle Peter and John thought that they were like sort of spiritually superior to the deacons Philip and Stephen. It's like, yeah, well, you guys are like a spiritual level seven, and we're like a spiritual level nine, so we're apostles and you're deacons. <laughs> and it's not that the apostles never helped make brownies or copies or set up chairs. All pastors have to do a bit of that, trust me. It's that the apostles knew their primary calling. And they felt responsible to guard that. They were called to be Jesus' witnesses to the ends of the earth. He had told them that in Acts 1.8. And this involved a laser-like devotion to the ministries of prayer and the word. They knew they were called to prayer and the word in a special way. It's not that, it's not that there were no one else in the community who was called to teach it's certainly the case that everyone else in the community was called to pray, but they knew they had a special calling to that. As the saying goes, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> How about you? What's your calling? You know, what's your main thing? If you're a Christian, you're a part of the royal priesthood of all believers. You may not be a pastor or a deacon, but you're called to ministry. You're called to ministry in the workplace. You're called to ministry in the home. You're called to serve God in the local church. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does somebody light a lamp and then put it under a basket or not put enough oil in it. <laughs> Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and say, that guy's awesome. No. <laughs> and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Maybe you're called to the ministry of healing. Maybe you're called to be an educator. Maybe you're called into politics like the great Anglican abolitionist William Wilberforce who was discerning pastoral ministry. I, I feel like, but God wouldn't leave him alone about this calling that he had to make a difference in the political sphere. And thank God that he listened to the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're here this morning and you're called to the very worthy and sadly, sadly to our demise undervalued ministry of being a wife and a mother, and a homemaker. Guys, that's sacred work. There's a story about a 20th century British evangelist named Gypsy Smith. And uh, Gypsy Smith was a gypsy, um, believe it or not. And uh, he used to call himself a Cambridge man, not because he graduated from Cambridge, but because he was born in a ditch behind Cambridge University. And... Um, he was a really excellent musician from a young age, and people loved to hear him play. And one day, he came to faith in Christ, and he just he was an incredibly anointed and gifted man. He became an evangelist, a great evangelist. He traveled around England and the United States and Australia and had great success. And during one of his missions, a woman wrote to him and said, A dear Gypsy Smith, I've been greatly blessed by your mission, but she said, I have a problem. 
I have 20 children. I believe that God has called me to be a preacher. But how can I do it if I have 20 children? To which Gypsy Smith wrote back with all wisdom, Dear Madam, how thankful you must be that God has not only called you to be a preacher, but has given you a congregation. <laughs> so we've all been given ministry. We've all been given a ministry. If we'll just open our eyes to the harvest, you are the salt of the earth. And here's another thing. Don't be surprised if God expands your calling. Don't be surprised if what you heard from him five years ago is a little different than what he wants to do in your life today. Because these deacons, man, it wasn't long. They were appointed to, to care for widows, but it wasn't long before we see them doing other things. They're performing miracles, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're dying as martyrs. And these roles were far more than what the apostles had in mind, but the Holy Spirit knew, guys. So buckle up. You don't know what the Lord's preparing you for. Jesus says, those who are faithful in little will be faithful with much. Okay, so let's summarize. When the apostles in the church faced a difficult situation, they got it right. And um, I mentioned three reasons why. They took the injustice seriously. Incarnation, we have to take injustices seriously, especially injustices being perpetuated in our own midst. Second, they came up with a creative solution. We don't have to just do things the way that we've always done things. We pray and ask the Lord for wisdom, and maybe he wants to do a new thing. And third, they understood that they were all called, but that doesn't mean that they have the same calling. And that brings us back to our initial questions. Word or widows? Children or conversions? Work or worship? And it was probably obvious to you when I asked those initial questions, but I hope it's even more obvious to you now that the church doesn't have to choose between these two things. Some of you may be more called to one, but that doesn't mean that you should undervalue the other. In fact, you might place greater value on that thing, but you say, man, that's a beautiful thing. I know I'm not called to that, but I bless that. God blesses that. Because the word, if you're a preacher of the word, talks about our obligation to widows. And how are we going to commend the gospel if we don't take care of the most vulnerable among us? The mission of the church is a holistic mission. It involves your commitment to both the workplace and to regular Christian worship. And as incarnation grows in the next season, I hope our children ministry gets deeper and better. And I hope we see more conversions and more baptisms. Maybe we'll see some conversions among our children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us to this great day. Thank you for your word, which you have promised will be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path as your people. And Father, we pray that... Um, you would give help to every person in here who names your name and is discerning their calling. And you would make that clear, Father. And if there's people here that don't know you, you had a reason for making them. And we pray that they would seek your face, that they might know that. 
and give themselves back to you and give themselves back to others for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.